you know, incidentally, you know, honey um, never goes bad. So you can just buy like five years worth of honey and store it in your house and it'll just sit there, you know, all good. Now I have this really beautiful mental picture in my head of like a flannel clad prepper guy sitting in his basement when all else has failed, just eating fistfuls of honey and licking them off of his hairy backs of his hands. (laughs) (laughs) That is a poignant image. (laughs) I mean, like, you kind of made the guy be a little bit like Winnie the Pooh in that, like he's an actual bear. (laughs) Yes, he's definitely a bear. (laughs) He used to go to to bear nights, but now, you know, they're not happening so often anymore. I know, like maybe he had to repurpose some of the leather gear for more like apocalyptic uses. I don't know what those are, mm-hmm. but <laughs> yeah, like like he's got like a black leather thong that he's turned <laughs> into a hand sling for the killing of squirrels. That's right, and he's flinging like little uh, little stones at them in the trees early in the morning <laughs> as the sun rises over the horizon behind the woods. Like, <laughs> mm-hmm. and then he and then once he cures and tans them um, and removes and bleaches their bones, he can use them to comb his large mustaches. <laughs> Wait, you're saying he uses the bones of the squirrel to make a comb? Just the rib bones. <laughs> this is queers at the end of the world. <laughs> this is Queers at the End of the World, the podcast where you filled up your go bag with hot Cheetos, so now your seed cache is all covered in delicious cheesy fire. I'm your host, Nina. I'm your host, Nat. And today we're talking about the classic 1993 novel of apocalyptic prepping for the rest of us, Parable of the Sower by Octavia Butler. And just to give you a heads up, when we say talking about, this is going to be a little different in format from a lot of media podcasts. We aren't exactly going to go step by step through the plot and talk about the novel chronologically from beginning to end. If you love Butler's parable novels especially and are interested in a show that really does that kind of deep dive moment by moment into them, I highly recommend the podcast Octavia's Parables by Toshi Regan and Adrian Marie Brown. They will just tell you in the softest, calmest voices in the world how to get your shit together and do something in the midst of all this mess. For us, I think the way we hope to talk about the books and movies and video games and shows and songs that we'll be discussing is going to be less about following the plot and more about whatever we're finding in them that's kind of interesting or helpful to us. That said, there will definitely be spoilers here and on every episode, and we're new to this and everything might change. But anyway, if you want to know what we're reading or watching or playing next, you can follow us on Instagram at Queer Worlds Podcast. And yeah, I mean, I think another reason we wanted to start with this book is also to sort of help us frame in this first episode why it is that both of us are so interested in thinking about apocalypse right now, and especially this idea of prepping. All right, so apropos of sci-fi and dystopias and all things apocalyptic, we're going to start with a little bit of time travel. And take you back to a moment right at the end of the 20th century. There was actually this pretty widespread worry about the end of the world. And it had a name, which was Y2K, stood for year 2000. And it was a problem with the way that computers read dates. Basically, they all read dates in six digits. So October 10th, 1999 would be 10, 10, 9, 9. When the computer clocks flipped over to the new millennium, they would read like 1100. People were worried that the computers would think it was the year 1900 and like 
planes were going to fall out of the sky, elevators were going to plummet to the bottoms of buildings, and microwaves were going to refuse to pop popcorn, and we were all going to be instantly overnight fucked. And in this moment, Nat and I were teenagers. So Nat, if you don't mind starting us off, can you describe where you were in the year 1999? So... My parents have always been into this sort of urban apostate fantasy, you know, of going to a farm and working the land. So in 1999, I was um, in a house in rural Virginia um, with my parents and my sister, some of our extended family and some friends of the family actually hold up there in in a in a special house where we'd put up two years worth of food and we're gonna wait out the the rollover to the year 2000 so I was very much living out the off the grid uh fantasy <laughs> we had a hand crank radio we had guns and we were ready for any number of things to go down. So it was definitely a prepper scenario for me in 1999. And what about you, Nina? So my family was, I was growing up with a dad who worked in computer banking and whose team for like two years at least, I think, before the year 2000 was in charge of fixing the bank's computing systems so that when 2000 happened, they wouldn't have any problems. Wow. Yeah. So like, it's kind of interesting because there's this real like contrast there because I was like scared of it too. You know, I was a little kid and I was worried about what would happen. And like, first of all, my dad was working on it. Like basically the most trustworthy person in my world was working on it. Um, and I remember kind of like asking, you know, like, is the world going to end? Like, what if the world ends? And his response to me was, you know, the world ends all the time. Everybody's always afraid that, you know, we'll never get to the other side of it and that the world's going to come crashing down for one reason or another. Yeah. And it never does. So I don't think it's going to be a big deal, <laughs> you know? And for me, that kind of like reinforced what was also kind of a false lesson in that moment, which is like, yeah, the world's never going to end. Like, it's never going to be the big one, you know? Right, right. Yeah. I think I, in some ways, had the opposite little shiver there where I was like, what would it be like if nothing happened? I, I definitely had that thought. And then, you know, one thing, because um, the rollover happens in different uh, places around the world, according to time zone, um, was that there wouldn't necessarily be a single moment when we knew the outcome. And I never really got to have a moment of like, aha, everything's fine, because we sort of waited to see what would happen for a while, like not just mm -hmm. that night, but like for days afterwards. We kind of at some point just like left and went back to our normal house that we live in. So like for me, I was like, well, I'm I'm glad I can go back home because I like my normal house better than the other house. <laughs> and I wasn't mad. Yeah. <laughs> but. Do you remember the moment when your family was sort of like, okay, it's not going to happen? 
I mean, I imagine you had kind of a story in your head of like how it was going to go. And I imagine it took some time to adjust to like, we're in a different timeline now. (laughs) It was. I mean, I think one of the things that's always characterized my ability to see the future in my own mind and I think is in part from this event. And I don't know. And I think that this might connect with having a queer identity also. I've never had a a picture of what the future was going to be like or what I could possibly expect out of life or feel entitled to. Like, you know, Mm -hmm. it's always felt kind of like there's like this expanse of shadow and grayness. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and that, that kind of sensibility was there during this. Like, I didn't actually have a clear narrative of, like, what it would be like if we had to live there, living on two years' worth of food. Yeah. I also didn't have a vision of, like, all of the good things that were going to happen to me and come to me in my life without the version where there was an apocalypse. So it was, like, the future was darkness before and after. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I I do think the one thing that I had had a vision of when I was younger was like, I really wanted to be seen, you know, with a capital S. <laughs> and I think the one thing that I, I do have clarity on as an adult is the ways that this this version of reality, the non-apocalyptic wasteland one that I have in my head mm-hmm. is there are ways of being seen. Like, I want to go to parties with other queer people <laughs> and wear a nice tie. And I would love to have that happen. And I don't want it to be prevented by, you know, social distancing. So I think I have a little bit more of a stake in it than I did when I was that age. And it was 1999. Yeah. Yeah. Because I mean, totally. It's like, it takes, um, or at least I think in, in my life and it sounds like in yours too, like, it takes a long time to even reconcile the vision of yourself that you're sort of trying to imagine. Like, especially I think for, for trans and non-binary folks, like, like the version of yourself that, you know, exists and the version that you live as, you know, like which one gets the future? (laughs) Like which one? Seriously. Like, uh, yeah. I mean, to me, like, if I turn into, like, a suburban middle class, like, parent or something, like, that seems like a personal apocalypse. Like, (laughs) you know, it's not to say that that's a negative vision of a future. It's just, to me, that would be annihilating. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, yeah, I don't know. It's just, like, yeah, it's hard to, to imagine a reality when those kinds of narratives all feel like a type of apocalypse. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. It's that apocalypse that I think we imagine over and over again, where like, you join a band of survivors headed by some guy who is unfortunately not a um, a thong slingshot making bear, but is usually like an ex sheriff of some kind. And you have to like, <laughs> you know, and, and then you have to like deal with his like drama with his with his masculinity while you like fight off zombies or something and if you don't then you're gonna just like end up in somebody's even worse patriarchy cult and like (laughs) not cool but like everybody's preparing for that you know i mean i think building cisterns is cool i think knowing how to hunt and 
knowing how to preserve food is really awesome. But I guess I realize more and more that like, you know, like knowing how to can versus not knowing how to can isn't going to save my life if it all goes down. It's like, and <laughs> yeah. I don't, I'm not just trying to get qualified for the sheriff's band of survivors, you know, <laughs> like I'm trying, like I, <laughs> that's not good enough, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's not like, I just feel like it's not going to be an apocalypse where like you knock on the like door of the little group and they're like, what skills do you have? You know? <laughs> Right. How's your jam? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then you have to like give them a like a canned right. good, and they taste it, and they're like, "Right, there's too many seeds in this raspberry jelly." Yeah, we only like seedless in this compound. Move it along. <laughs> <laughs> good. Thank you, Nat. See again. I'm reassured by someone I trust that the apocalypse is is, is not going to be one I can't handle. <laughs> You know, I think that's actually a really good place for us to transition to talking about the novel. So Parable of the Sower is different from so many of the survival narratives that we're going to be talking about on the show, like because it does some of that imagining of like what a future could look like for like queer and black and immigrant and poor and other marginalized people. And, you know, the thing that it imagines surviving when it imagines a survival story is like not the usual like old white guy who's the main character in so many survival stories. So we're going to start with a little bit of a plot summary just to give you a sense of like the major plot points and major characters um, if you've never read Parables or if you haven't read them in a while. Yes. So Parable of the Sower takes place in the near future. Like It's 2024 when the book begins. In an America that has really been decimated by climate change and extractive capitalism to the point where there are a few very rich people, but almost everyone else is pretty desperate. There's constant fires. Water is really expensive. So our protagonist is a 15-year-old girl named Lauren Oya Olamina who lives in one of these walled communities. Uh, Setting fires has become like kind of a common thing. In fact, there's a drug that people can take that makes them really enjoy setting fires. And so people are often burned out of their homes and communities because of this. It's just a much poorer world and, and a much more desperate America. So people don't have what they need and they don't have any way of getting it other than taking it from someone else or scavenging it or finding it. And it's a violent world. It's scary for Lauren to leave her walled community. And um, they're all kind of like doing their best to be as self-sufficient as possible within that neighborhood. And in that neighborhood, Lauren's father is the preacher and one of the kind of major leaders in the neighborhood. And he remembers better times. But his daughter is really looking forward, trying to think about what a better future would be. Yeah. So... You know, what's going on in her mind is that this situation of living in this walled off community is obviously unsustainable and that at some point she's going to have to leave the walls of this small world and set out. So as a kid, she makes up this religion called Earthseed. And one of the precepts of Earthseed is this notion that God is change. So there is this idea of not worshiping God like as a person, just as this force of constant chaos and transformation and difference, good things, bad things, all of these things are happening 
and you just got to roll with the punches. Well, God is change, shape God. Those are like some of the central tenets of our seed. And that means like accepting that change will occur, not being so terrified of change that you just avert your eyes from it, which is what a lot of people in Lauren's community and her life have done. And instead embracing that fact, doing everything that you can to be prepared. And that like word is kind of a key word. I feel like that's a big part of why we wanted to talk about the novel in, in this first episode is because Lauren comes down on the side of like, if you prepare yourself for what you think is the most likely way for things to change, then you'll be better positioned to shape that change when it comes. And indeed, at a certain point, these fire-loving drug users bash their way into her community, burn the whole thing down, murder almost everyone she knows and her entire family, and Lauren grabs her go-bag that she's prepared. (laughs) Yep. She's got a go bag. And she and it's got like food and clothes and shoes and seeds. Um, and she escapes um, and she starts to move north. And as she goes, she picks up converts. This religion comes with her in the form of her written work. Right. And it's just the thing that motivates her in this incredibly dangerous journey along walking along a highway where there's all kinds of dangerous groups of people, you know, you know, attacking people, taking their Terrible money, things people on. have guns, people yeah. getting raped, people getting murdered, people getting beaten up and left for dead. Yeah. So, so she goes along gathering together this group of people through, you know, honestly, just through having this kind of vision. And Lauren meets a lover, an older guy named Bancole. And eventually, through a lot of scary shit and truly terrifying a wildfire scene that is probably really resonating for a lot of folks on the West Coast right now, they all together as a group make their way to a piece of land that Bancole owns, and they start to set up their new community together. That's where Parable of the Sower ends, and Parable of the Talents takes things up a few years later, although we're not going to summarize that book's plot because we're not going to talk about it as much here. So we're talking about the year 2000, and one of the things that talking about Y2K brings up for me is that I think in a lot of ways, the Y2K scare was sort of this anxious reaction. Um, Over the course of the 90s, you know, it was like email got invented, like internet got to be something that was in everyone's homes. That was something that I think both of us lived through, and that had been happening for decades, but the 90s was really like a tipping point. And I think that Y2K in some ways was like this, like, kind of communal, national, international anxious reaction to that, you know, people were scared of technology, like they were scared of the power that computers held over their lives. And I was interested to like, kind of put that moment into conversation, like with the fact that Parable of the Sower and Parable of the Talents are written like pretty much at that same time, like Talents comes out in 1998, which is like, you know, when people really started getting scared about Y2K. And yet for Butler, she's not really worried about technology. Like technology is not like a threat in those books anywhere near as much as like climate change or extractive capitalism or fascism. Yeah. So I think that fear of technology is an affluent fear. So Hmm. of course, the people that can afford technology control the narratives around technology that are distributed by technology. Mm -hmm. And 
Parable of the Sower and Parable of the Talents exists outside that landscape. And there are moments in the book where we kind of look in through the window of the affluent in that world where they have VR devices and haptics and immersive experiences. But those books sit outside of affluence and in the reality of poverty and people who have to live without the privilege of access to technology. Totally. It makes me think of like how like in Lauren's neighborhood when we first meet her, she describes like these rooms that are full screen immersive television sets. And there are those in the neighborhood, but like they can't afford to work them anymore or they're older versions and they couldn't afford to update them. So it's like, yeah, I think it's exactly as you say, like this technology exists, but the people that these books are about are not the people who can access it. And that's not just fictional. Like, it's just that someone who might be in the socioeconomic class of a person who would be a member of Earthseed has no control over the narrative around technology in the first place. And I feel like the second book, Parable of the Talents, is like a little bit more kind of interested in technology than Parable of the Sower is. But things like slave collars and the control belts, you know, walls, the book is interested in technology of walls and of control um, because that's the that's the technology that its characters are really have to be interacting with. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I always feel like control collars are sort of with this type of writing in the same category for me as like, oh, cannibalism. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you ever read the Wheel of Time books by Robert Jordan. There was a kind of like gross control collar scenario in those books that was very, very toxic patriarchy. Yeah. And I, I, I just always have like a slightly negative reaction where I'm like, oh my God, control collars. Like it feels a little bit like a trope. Like I find that one of the most terrifying aspects in the parable books, the return of company towns and company script. Yeah. Like that is so threatening and so terrifying to me when she writes about that in a way that like, I can just see that happening immediately, like right now. Mm -hmm. And then like the slave collar one, I'm like, there would be a lot of if thens that would have to lead to that. Whereas like a company town requires no chain of branching pathways for it to just start happening to people. I mean, you know, I think, I think that that difference feels a little bit like it could be a factor of being white folks in America. Yeah. And like having, you know, kind of grown up with less of that threat of compulsion and violence over our heads. I mean, I definitely agree that like the experience of growing up in in this moment when we've been watching, you know, ourselves and everyone around us, even though they know better, give away enormous amounts of control over their lives in favor of convenience or, or what someone says is safety. Like that is a very scary thing that I think we've really seen with our own eyes. But I feel like, you know, there are large swaths of the country where your family can include multiple people who are wearing anklets that 
are transmitting their location to their parole board at all times. You know, like, it's not like there isn't this thing that's wearable tech that's designed for control. Yeah. And it, it does characterize for me the way you kind of painted that picture of why the first one, like, would feel more threatening to me based on my life experience. And I can totally see that. I mean, just thinking about some of the things that we've been hearing about the ICE detention centers and what's going on with women in those centers with forced sterilization and some of that stuff that's been trickling through the news just recently, being able to see that with people in your community and people in your family, there is no longer that chain of if-thens anymore. Yeah. You know, I think definitely there's a a sense for someone like me who sees a longer chain of if-thens, like that is like the padding of having a certain level of privilege. Like, oh, well, then this would happen and this would happen and this would happen and then that would happen. And someone who's on parole and they're under house arrest and they're wearing an anklet, they're like, oh, there's no chain. Like, that's already part of my reality. So I can definitely see that. Yeah. I think it's interesting because I think it really relates to exactly what you're saying about like technology and the ways that Butler uses like technology tropes from the point of view of like working class people who can't afford to use them. I think also like the slave collars, like, yeah, it's totally a trope of like dystopian, apocalyptic, scary technology fiction. But it's also like in this book, it's seen from the point of view of of like black Americans and sex workers and people who've been on the losing end of the white supremacist toxic patriarchy power structure. So like Butler is maybe playing with it. She does that with cannibalism too. There's like that moment when they show up in the woods and see a group of kids eating, eating a human leg. And that's like such a common scene in apocalyptic fiction. But there's something about the way that she does it where it's like, ah, fuck, that's sad. Yeah. It feels less like the nasty truth about human nature and more like this is what like these terrible social systems and social decisions bring us to. Yes, exactly. Nat, do you feel like we're missing anything? I feel like there's some big thing that we're leaving out of the plot. (laughs) Oh, I know what we're forgetting, Nina. We're forgetting about Lauren Oya Olamina's vulnerability. Yeah. Which is that she has what is called in the book sharing. And this is the consequence of having parents who took a sort of intellect-enhancing drug that causes a birth defect where children uh, with this sharing, otherwise known as hyper-empathy, when they see other people experiencing pain, they also experience what they imagine is that pain. So it's not a magical mind link. It's a yeah. like a psychological effect. But in the world of the book, it's like if someone gets stabbed, the pain she has is the same pain as if she had been stabbed. Yeah. So part of her her journey in this highly dangerous environment outside the walls of her community involves seeing violence done and experiencing a bodily feeling of that violence whenever she sees it. Right. So she has this kind of like enforced radical empathy where she has to, like if she causes someone pain, she's not going to be okay either. And I think one of the interesting things, you know, she starts the book really as kind of a loner, 
But I feel like as she goes on, it's one of the reasons why she kind of has to rely on community and that community is so important to her is because she is on this kind of fundamental level unable to defend herself unless she just kills the person that is attacking her. And she does kill people. Mm -hmm. And I think in the world that she grows up in, it's so obvious that you will have to kill people at times in order to live yourself. Yeah. It's such a killer be killed world. But I also love about this book that that doesn't mean that nothing matters. You know, like in some dystopian narratives and some post-apocalyptic narratives, the killer be killed ethics of the world at large mean that basically like, you know, nothing seems to matter at all. And that's not true in the least for Lauren Olamina, who is really going to try and do her best for everyone who is not a danger to her life. Yeah, exactly. And what's interesting is she has to be an arbiter of morals in each moment. And following her journey of like doing leadership and deciding how to handle extremely dangerous confrontations and violence, you know, according to this sort of orientation she has through discovering the the religion of Earthseed and having this positive obsession. Yeah, I mean, she chooses to trust people. And it's really scary because for the reader, you've been kind of conditioned to see that this is such a dangerous world. But her choices to trust people are right. The people that she trusts are good people. You know, and she's not like, she's not flippant about it, but she does trust herself and she trusts her instincts. And I think for me, that's really powerful to see too. Like the idea of this really vulnerable person also just like believing in themselves so much, you know, believing in the things that they're interested in and believing in their ability to make good choices about who to have around them. Yeah. And like the like acknowledgement that like building your community and making good choices about who is interested in living in the kind of world that you want to live in is like definitely an apocalypse preparation skill. (laughs) For real. Just the importance of like evoking a world where such a person could could think in this way. You know, it's interesting. Like she also doesn't have to like have this type of experience of like doing something and then being punished for it later by the narrative. Um, Right. Which is always just such a radical thing for me. Like we get so used to, especially women and women of color, being somehow punished. And that never happens to that character. And right. I think it does kind of give her this like otherworldly ability to always like know what the right decision is that, mm. you know, you don't need to worry about if that's realistic because it's about in part like what the possibility of a narrative is. Yeah, for me too. I mean, like you're saying that thing where, you know, God forbid the reader should forget for 10 minutes that the life of a marginalized person is hard. (laughs) I know. Like we're going to make sure things go badly. And this book isn't interested in, like life is hard. It like takes that part for granted first and is interested in sort of imagining, well, all right, how would a person create something better then? Yes. Exactly. Yeah. You know, and I had, I really had that, that moment when um, out on the road, Lauren Olamina meets the man who later becomes her husband, um, Ben Cole. There's a moment when you realize they have a mutual attraction. 
and he's a lot older than her and he's someone like many of her converts she kind of finds on the road and, you know, part of the narrative is this sense of not being sure if he can be trusted and trying to understand who he is. And then they sleep together. And at that moment, I was like, I'm just so used to that kind of like punishment moment. I was like, he is going to betray her and it's going to be so bad. And like, I was like waiting for the axe to drop. And then like, honestly, that is the moment when you realize who the author is and you're like, this author is not going to do that in this story. Mm. And I was just like, thank God. It, it just makes me realize like the frustration of reading like Western world narratives. And I'm glad to come out from under the heaviness of that being in mm. every story I read. You know what I mean? Yeah. And like, or at least like the punishment isn't inevitable. You know, like when people talk about like that horror movie trope where like if like two people have sex, then they're going to die. Right. And that's like because of the like it's like the way the world works and whether it's the world of fiction or like the real world or the world of horror movies, like if this, then this. And I feel like Butler just isn't that interested in it's like, no, it's not the world. It's like horrible people. (laughs) Right, right, right. Like, yes. if somebody's going to punish you for living your life, it's going to be because, you know, they're driven to punish you for reasons that are probably because they're really shitty. Yeah, yeah. I feel like what I'm trying to say is, like, it is about her identity. I mean, she's a black woman. Her character is a black woman. If you've been a marginalized person, you understand that your marginalization is not an if this, then this situation. Like, it's not because you did something. Right. So there isn't a sense of, like, cosmic checks and balances. Like, um, oh, I did X and now I'm suffering, therefore, this life of Y. It's like, oh, no, like, I, I, you know, I just sort of am me and this situation has emanated from people around me. And so it's like bad things happen to you, but it's obvious to you in that situation, like being black in America, you didn't cause that. And so there isn't a narrative relationship between your flaws and your acts and necessarily the kinds of bad things that happen to you. Right. So you can dis- sort of disconnect the, um, the line that is drawn between those right. two things. What do you think about Lauren's use of cross-dressing in Parable of the Sower? And to give some context for folks who might have missed it in the novels, in the central part of the novel, when Lauren and Harry and Zara take to the highway on their long walk north, Lauren makes a choice to dress as a man in order to protect herself and her friends. So how did you feel about that aspect of the story, Nat? That's a really interesting question. Like, I just so often feel like, quote unquote, like badass women who can shoot a gun and are capable, are extremely sexualized for being that way yeah. by the lens of the narrative, right? Right, because patriarchy has to, like, undercut that power by, like, sexualizing Exactly. And of course, like, I don't know why I would think that, like, Octavia Butler would sexualize her protagonist. I didn't think that. But I just, you get these, like, built-in reactions that are just, like, almost automatic where you're just, like, bracing yourself for, like, this annoying thing that's going to happen. And when that came up, it was just like, instead of an annoying thing happens, it's like, I'm being given a piece of cake. And I'm just like, (laughs) yes, 
<laughs> cross-dressing cake like I really want to eat this <laughs> so I I have like personal like transmasculine feelings about her particular experience of cross-dressing that she could just like in this world just like instantly like she puts on men's clothes and then everyone's like oh you're a man I'm like how <laughs> <laughs> totally. like there was never a moment where people clocked her and then she has like this thing like it was always just well like when she puts on that outfit that's that's what it is and that was so awesome though it's like more part of the like piece of cake that I got to eat about Mm -hmm. that section of the story and Mm -hmm. I don't know I enjoyed kind of like mentally being in conversation with that it's interesting that you clocked it that way because I feel like there I I actually feel like there are a bunch of points in the book where she does get seen Bankley recognizes that she's a woman you know Harry can't keep the pronouns that she's asked him to use straight so he keeps referring to her as she like there's some really good like fucking up pronouns and it making people moments. <laughs> yes <laughs> um but you know like I think when I first learned about Octavia Butler because I read some blog post somewhere where somebody was like people of the world there is this author and there are books out there with like cross-dressing black female protagonists. And like, you know, and I think the way that, that it was put was something like, like a black woman in drag saving the world. And I was like, Oh, really? (laughs) (laughs) And I like, you know, and I like rushed to find it, you know? And I was like, and there's like lots of books and I could not believe it. And I was so excited. And, you know, in many, many ways, all of my expectations were exceeded. But in this one way, I feel like I I expected a person whose gender identity was like not cis female. <laughs> and yeah. I feel like Butler, like she has Lauren be like, not that keen on the fact that she passes so easily and you know like similar in terms of like trans feelings reading this and being like <laughs> being like man you know <laughs> yeah it's like why do you get to pass when you don't even care like <laughs> yeah and, and then on the other hand I feel like I respect that because I feel like part of what Butler is doing comes out of the just humanity that she shows all of her characters and the empathy that she shows all of her characters, like she is like recognizing that Lauren's gender identity is female, <laughs> even if she passes, <laughs> like even if even if she does this thing for safety, you know, that doesn't change her gender identity, you know, and, and there's something that I can take from that. I feel like as a trans person who felt felt various ways while I looked other ways, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like like I get that and I and I respect the sort of respect for her experience of her gender even though people read her differently. Um but I but I can't say that I wasn't a little bit disappointed when I didn't find, you know, like you know, another a gender queer uh protagonist. 100%. I I yeah. <laughs> I mean, I was just going to be like I had that exact moment. I have one friend in particular who's like really butch and we had a funny conversation recently where she was like, you know, if ever, anybody ever like is weird to you in the bathroom, I'll punch him in the face for you. <laughs> she doesn't identify as queer. And mm-hmm. I think 
and I felt like Lauren was like her, where it's like this like totally badass woman who I just like, and then like that woman who isn't trans has this like side to them that's feminine and wants to be like having a a femininity moment with, you know, and maybe that's like a dress with Doc Martens and like dark red lipstick and like jagged spiked hair at like a gala. Yeah. Maybe Octavia Butler can write from a place of those like badass women who also have a feminine side. Yeah. I feel like, I feel like that's, that's it. There's like a thing about that, like recognition of, gender as lived and complex that even though this wasn't a character who was just like me it it was a character who like represents the world that I need to live in because there's room for for who she is you know absolutely absolutely I mean that's where we get the cross-dressing cake even though (laughs) like maybe we wanted like a different baked good (laughs) (laughs) well yeah like yeah, it's definitely cake. It's definitely cake, and I'm here for it. <laughs> I guess, I don't know, one more thing I, I wanted to, like, kind of bring out about the cross-dressing aspect of the book, um, because before I was thinking about it for this episode, I'd never, you know, I'd only kind of thought about that moment of disappointment and then, like, getting over it that I felt as a reader. But the more I think about, like, the way that Butler uses cross-dressing... I feel like the reason, like the reason the character decides to cross dress is not out of a gender expression, but for safety. And it's about like specifically, she does it because she wants to travel with Harry and Zara and Zara is black and Harry is white. And she's afraid that like, if people see the three of them, then they'll figure that Harry is in an interracial couple with either one or both of these black women and people won't like that and that will make them unsafe. So like, I guess one of the things that I find really interesting, even beyond just the like dimension of gender identity, is how like Butler is using cross-dressing to kind of think about the ways that like gender performance does have to do with safety. I think that that situation is set up to show just the complexity of the interactions between all of these different kinds of threats to Lauren and the group of people that she's formed. And then showing that it's not uh, like out of a desire to like experiment with being a man that she chooses to do it. It's through an understanding that gender is a performance. Mm -hmm. She has more tools at her disposal to make sure she and the community that she's protecting all remain safe and alive. Well, it's like the ability to, to make those choices to keep yourself safe. And to like prepare yourself to make those choices to keep yourself safe without like it necessarily meaning that you're, you know, giving up some fundamental part of yourself or, you know, or like that you're giving it up for good, you know? I mean, there's a way that that comes out of kind of the security of belonging somewhere in the binary in the first place. Like, I know. I mean, I feel like, you know, if you have someone, someone in that role who's trans and they're like, oh, I'm going to like, dress as a woman in order to make it so that we're safe or I'm going to dress as a man so that this this is safe for us that has a totally different set of stakes than like someone right. who's like well I'm a woman but like I'm going to like dress as yeah. a man for safety and then like I'll go back to like my other identity that's 
a secure like location in the binary when I'm done. Whereas, yeah, like the feeling, the other feeling is like more in that sort of space of feeling like annihilation. Right. Yeah. I mean, again, kind of coming back to this question of like, you know, how to survive and what survives. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think one of the cool things about this conversation is imagining a version of this that isn't annihilating, like thinking of a community like Earthseed as being some formulation of a possibility of what could happen to me mm-hmm. is incredibly meaningful because the way I think along those lines is, I don't know, like you get into this thing where you're like, is my ability to express my identity something that I can only do when quote unquote, everything's okay. And I think that this book is like, that's a totally flawed way of thinking that has so many problems about it, really. Yeah. And for me, that's like a rallying cry not to think about things from a place of privilege and also not to think or expect that annihilation is like lurking around the corner. Right. Oh, totally. Because like, you know, yeah, because things can be as bad as they are and as bad as they could be. But the world that you're trying to build remains consistently the one in which you don't have to be annihilated. <laughs> well, and and also like one thing I think about that is like my perception that things were ever okay was privileged. And mm-hmm. things weren't okay, you know. Mm-hmm. So yeah. for me to have some kind of illusion that it's like my exploration of my identity, you know, relies on a certain level of security is sort of putting up walls around finding that expression, sort of like the little community that Lauren was living in with her family. Like, oh, I can only do it in there. Well, there are people that have to do it yeah. outside of there already right now. And they're doing it. You know, that's where yeah. my mind goes. Mm. And I think it's something that Butler really recognizes in the in the way that like Lauren talks about safety too. I think of Parable of the Sower as kind of like a marginalized person's prepper novel. There's something like about this idea of like how to prepare and bad things of all kinds are happening all the time. It's not because of who you are, but you can change things. And I feel like queer people are constantly being told like this thing of like the, you know, the omniscient narrator is going to come down on you for being who you are. For me, and probably for a lot of other queer people, like one of the reactions to coming out even was just like, you're going to live a horrible life, you know, you're going to like, nobody's ever going to love you. (laughs) Like, you're going to have to like constantly fight violence, you know, and I think as a fat person, too, you have this like constant kind of threat of like, nobody's going to love you held over your head. And So for me, you know, both of those identities as a fat person and a queer person, it was like, I also saw that, that, like, it's not this either or of like, if I am this one way, everything in my life is going to be terrible. Yeah. And it's in the same sense of like wanting to anticipate or know or be ready. Yeah, it's this idea of wanting to anticipate the future. And I think I hear you saying like, one of the things that you learn from Parable of the Sower is like a different orientation toward that future, toward the idea of that future. 
you know, as opposed to maybe the fear that was part of the experience that was shaping the the reaction of your parents growing up. It's like, I guess maybe the better way to say this is just to ask you this question. Do you feel like it is a different orientation to preparation than the thing that your parents were doing when you were a kid? Yeah, I do. I think that the difference is articulated by Earthseed and this idea of God is change, so shape change. And that idea is about letting go of your vision of what the apocalypse is. Mm. Um, Because I think the Y2K crisis in many ways was around almost like bringing into being this particular manifestation of what the apocalypse would be so that one could have control over it. Oh, so real. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So like with Earthsea, the idea is that you can't know exactly what the danger of what the crisis is going to be because your life is inherently a process of flux and change. And what you're trying to do is not get rid of change. It's to be able to shape this unpredictable force of change in your life and be prepared or forward thinking in such a way as to guide that force. Mm. And I think that orientation is about, about being able to be prepared without exactly knowing what the thing is. Mm. So Mm. yeah, I'm still afraid of people saying to me, like, no one's going to love you. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't think that that's, something you ever totally get past like i think in the in the idea of a crisis scenario i mean it's a really there's a side to it that makes makes you feel frightened because you think like you know what community would i have to rely on or to be in if that kind of pronouncement has been handed down to me either from the sheriff's compound where they don't accept raspberry jam with seeds for the love of God, I love seeds. <laughs> but like also like there's something really important about like being your authentic you if you're going to be able to feel feelings and understand how to connect those with some of the themes we've been talking about of like knowing what you would do in a crisis, right? Because like if you can't, If everything's locked down and hidden, you are locked down. Yeah. And so the first thing you have to do is like be able to feel who you are and be able to feel feelings and then be able to understand what you do when you feel feelings. Mm -hmm. And like for me, being like, I'm this, you know, I'm I'm genderqueer, like has allowed me to be like, oh, now I can do that series of steps. Yes. And that gives me so much trust in myself mm. that I, if something went down, I would trust my reaction to it. And I've never felt like that in the past. Like when I was younger and when I was in that state of like being a, being sort of stony, mm-hmm. um, I don't know if you identify with that feeling of like hardened stony interior because you're just trying to prevent. Yeah some kind of self-knowledge from like bubbling out to the surface. Oh yeah. (laughs) Um, 
<laughs> I mean, it's, it's, but yeah, yeah. That word even comes to us from like queer culture of like being stone. I mean, it has uh, some other connotations too, but yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that, I mean, I think there's something there about self-knowledge. And for me also, there is an aspect around community to it, which is that to me, being able to say, I am this, I'm queer, to me, that's like, there are other people. (laughs) And that is such an amazing feeling for me to think that those people are out there and that that could be a a part of the formulation, I would imagine, as a future in an apocalypse or otherwise, really. Right. Just had the, the like possibility of people to go through a thing with and to like reflect you for you, who you are and who you want to be. Yeah. I, I think another aspect of it is also like, you've been talking about how like being queer and like this, the need to know yourself and the need to recognize that like you have feelings, like is the prepping of the self for like to be able to cope with change. And I think for me, I've been making a lot of art about climate change. I've been working on a lot of theater and puppetry um, that is thinking about climate change and um, especially doing a lot of trying to imagine hopeful futures, like trying to get us out of this like we're doomed um, imagination where everybody just shuts down, right? Feeling becomes impossible in that doom scenario. And there have to be, like you're saying, there have to be room for emotions. So how do we make room for those emotions? And every time I try to talk about that, like hope for the future, I always end up talking about transness. And I think, you know, for a while, I like tried to think about why, uh, you know, as a as a person who was assigned female at birth, and I identified as gay, and I identified as butch, and I identified as stone, and all of those labels that you know were kind of like I could I could like go that far and then eventually in my 30s I was like okay I'm genderqueer I'm trans um and that was like a really that took a lot but the like scariness of that step is part of how I've constructed my hope in this moment where we're faced with like these tremendous changes because of the experience of change as positive. You know, sometimes change that feels totally terrifying and destabilizing is actually like, like there are ways forward and ways into yourself through that is something that I think transitioning, you know, to the extent that that's something that I've been working on for the last many years of my life has taught me. And it's not necessarily going to lead to the end. (laughs) I love that. I I have so many things I want to say to that. Um, I was myself incredibly inspired by um, a book I read, which Nina, I know I've mentioned it to you before. Selected Diaries of Lou Sullivan. We both laughed in pleasure. Yeah. Yes. Um, of course, Lou Sullivan was a gay trans man who ended up dying. Um due to HIV AIDS and he was sort of a pioneer in um, gender confirmation surgery and had this journey of kind of being denied his identity being constantly denied because the narrative um, in, in the seventies and eighties was 
if you're a trans guy, then you have to be attracted to women. And he was just like, I exist, you know, and like people, you know, may not accept me as a trans man, but like I'm or as a gay man, but like I'm dying this the death that many gay men are dying right now. And that sounds really dark. It is one of the most hopeful books I've ever read. Yeah. It's just about transition as self-knowledge. And Mm. that sort of exploration of change and transition, not as a linear path, but just this evolving thing of life. And it just seemed like it came from this place of like, I move towards joy. I move towards myself. And I have experienced pain and suffering and denial of my identity. But there's a part of me that's like, you know, who I am is a shaper of change. Like, <laughs> to, to like, maybe like, over, be overly pithy and link it with Parable of the Sower. But just, it was, it's something that I would absolutely yeah. aspire to in my own life. Yeah, I, it makes me think a little bit about kind of growing up into the world that AIDS made in terms of like, New York's, like, very uh, robust, like, community (laughs) of, you know, LGBTQ, definitely like emphasis at that time on the LGBTQ. (laughs) <laughs> but like, <laughs> in, in terms of like who was like visible and yeah but like but that there were you know there was like there were marches and there was a sense of like a political and communal coherence there to to an extent that was helpful for me when I was a teenager and like that can't kind of coming out of this time of plague and that you know, it reminds me of the experience of grief. It reminds me of how, you know, this thing that uh, I've, I've seen quoted all over the place from Arundhati Roy about the, the pandemic as portal where like there is this moment for, you know, yeah, seeing like understanding how having a situation that um, makes you have to act in the way that you wish to act (laughs) or, you know, pay attention to who you are in this moment. And, you know, I think in my experience of this particular thing, it's been just a lot of gratitude for the ways in which people have shown up for each other. You know, it's not just doggy dog. It's not everybody locking into their own houses and, and ignoring other people's needs. There's mutual aid. There's, there's protesting and there's a recognition that like, we need that, (laughs) that I don't know, like everything that comes out of this moment is not a bad thing. Oh yeah. I mean, for me, like one of the things I'm always trying to work with or get away from is that I grew up in this way that sort of teaches isolation. And one of the things I think has changed for me in going through the the pandemic is saying to myself even if it's uncomfortable for you um to be with people the discomfort is worth it and the moment to have adventure and have community is 100% right now and you know, I I no longer want to have the mindset where I'm like, should I go to this, you know, so-and-so's having a gathering or, 
an event mm. or a party and and go through this complicated calculus of whether or not I should go because it's going to make me feel uncomfortable and my gender is going to be like misrecognized and I'm going to feel awkward and you know all of this and I'm like the time is now for me to like wear a tie to that thing and go to that thing <laughs> you know mm, mm. yes so, yeah <laughs> and I think yeah. that just like saying like it's not that it's gonna like make it make it not be awkward for me to like try to have those experiences but just change my valuing of any kind of thing that involves being with a group of people um yeah yeah and that and that exact thing is the kind of like i feel like that is the the kind of preparedness that you're talking about needing the like different take on preparedness is knowing how you want to react and what you have decided is best for you so that you don't have to agonize and go back and like figure out what the right thing is to do. It's like, I know what the right thing is to do and it's going to make it easier to just do it when the time comes. Yep, exactly. You know, I think too of the idea of preparedness and even putting together a go bag, you know, I can see myself saying, you know, I do feel anxious when I do this kind of work. I do feel weird. And that's just a part of that experience. Mm. I'm not expecting it to feel okay. I'm expecting it to be full right. of all kinds of things, right? And that doesn't mean I don't do it. Right. That doesn't mean that I neglect something that could save my precious life. You know, for me... I've always wanted to live a life that wasn't defined by fear because of my experience as a kid prepping and being ready is associated with defining your life through fear. And mm. it's historically been really difficult for me to differentiate between outrageous behavior that comes from fear and justified behavior that comes from imagination and planning of the sort that we see in parable of the sower mm. yeah lauren has to deal with a lot of people who don't want to look at it in the early part of the book and she just says over and over again like i mean to survive and like i think for me you know i i you know i i do have the feeling i mean to survive often and I just think that for me, survival in this life, the one that I see as non-apocalyptic, has been associated with rejecting fear that leads to total anxiety and anxiety leading to total isolation and isolation being a path to self-annihilation. Mm. And I think for me, it's definitely about you know, if I were to create a go bag, I would have to see it as coming from something other than outsized fear response to the circumstances and causes and effects that I'm observing. And, you know, talking to Kalyaan, um, oh, and that's in the interview we play in the episode following this one, really pushed me in into a different mode of seeing it. But I think that there's maybe more experiences I need to have that let me see it that way more often because I'm so primed to think of it as evidence of sliding down that slope and landing in this place where I would just be shrouded in that darkness that I kind of saw in the future, I guess. 
Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, it, it makes me curious if the outcome of us doing these talks will be seeing if we can get ourselves to create a go bag, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, like even just hearing you kind of frame it as like fear response and because, you know, it's true. Like when I say that, when I say that, like, the idea of meaning to survive is is hard for me to imagine, I mean, I think that it's because the, like, world in which it's, like, not, not a fear-based preparation planning is, like, hard to imagine. And I feel like having talked to Kalyan and, like, having even just begun these discussions, it, it, like, the shape of, like, how one would even get there starts to, like, emerge. And, like, you know, it's like, it's like the idea of like packing a go bag, not like against the like monsters that want to get you, but like for packing for a trip. Like when I think about like packing to go on tour. Right. Yeah. Like packing for the future you want. Exactly. I mean, I was going to say that's like, I want to bring the stuff that makes me happy and safe and feel good so that when I'm with my community, I can bring my best self to that that community and take care of other people in the community who need support or just honestly like be able to sit with people and be laughing instead of like, you know, oh my God, like I, whatever, you know, like if you sleep in a tent and you don't have yeah. a sleeping bag, you're going to feel shitty the next morning, right? <laughs> yeah. If you try to, if you try to like, you know, cook and you don't have salt. <laughs> not gonna taste good you gotta bring your salt so you're gonna put salt in your go bag (laughs) yeah and I'll tell you like in my in my tour bus go bag I definitely always bring like you know like ways to write and I always bring headphones because I know I'm gonna need a way to like be alone even this really um you know in, in this space packed full of people that I love oh man I feel that so hard I always bring a notebook everywhere. I, I I honestly, like, if you thought of it in that lens, like, I always wear a backpack everywhere I go. And it's so I can have a notebook, like, literally, like, attached to mm-hmm. my body whenever I'm outside. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I guess I already have a go bag. It has hand sanitizer in there. <laughs> yeah, so you can write a poem and eat a sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And those are the things I need to do. <laughs> Oh, cool. I guess we've already started our go bag. (laughs) (laughs) Next time, we're talking with queer activist and disaster preparedness expert Kalyan Mendoza. What we ended up doing was having a conversation about fear and consent, and it gave me a lot of insight into my own understanding of the way I react to preparedness and the way I react to fear. So it's really worth taking a listen. Yeah. This has been Queers at the End of the World. Our show art is by the fabulous Ellie Yanagasawa, who you can find for your own commission at Ellie the Cosmic Jelly. The music for this episode was La Fine des Ericotes by Tintamare. You can find us at QueerWorlds.com or at QueerWorldsPodcast on Instagram. If you enjoyed the show, we would really, really appreciate it if you'd rate and review us. It helps people find us and it lets us know that you're out there listening. And tell a friend who you think will enjoy it. That's by far the best way for folks to find out about the podcast. Part of the point of all this is for us to talk to our community, so we'd love to hear back from you. 
If you're a queer person making apocalyptic and dystopian media, and you have something you'd like us to read, watch, play, or listen to, or you just have a great idea for a topic we should cover on the show, get in touch with us at queerworldspodcast at gmail.com. All right. Good luck out there, dear hearts. <laughs>